The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. of the band for leading us in worship. Would you like to do that today? Uh, they uh, work hard for us. In fact, they led the worship for uh, on Thursday and Friday. We hosted the Montana Southern Baptist Convention. There are 136 churches and church-type missions that uh, affiliate with Southern Baptists here in the state of Montana. We had about half or three-quarters of them represented. We had a time of preaching and encouragement. We elected uh, Lee Merck, who was the pastor of Church of the Rockies in uh, Red Lodge, as our new president. Uh, at one time in the course of the meeting, we had about 20 church planters on this stage that we prayed for. And uh, it just represents our work together. Speaking of church planters, you know that we're sponsoring a, a new church start in Gillette, Wyoming. They are not meeting today because all of them are going to Green River, Wyoming, to help a new church start there. So how great is it that the church you're starting is starting a church? And so we rejoice in that and what God's doing. If you're just coming here every Sunday and you miss what's going on through Emmanuel Baptist Church during the week, you are missing so very much. We had people saved this week. Two of our pastors have left to go to China Uh, Pastor Steve Fowler and Pastor Jim Tabor, be in prayer for them. There are entire cities in China that have populations of 20, 25, 30 million, and we don't even know their names. We can't even pronounce the names of those cities. But think of that many people that need the gospel. And so uh, Fowler and Tabor are kind of on a reconnaissance mission. Uh, IMB would like us to engage in in, uh, pastoral training there. And they're trying to figure out what we can do to help them there. So we have this opportunity then, not only to reach billings for Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to descend and be with us this hour, but all the work that we do through Montana, down into Wyoming, and all the parts of the world. We're getting ready to go to Nepal in a couple of weeks. And so pray for all of these things. We have asked God to meet with us here in our worship and our study together, and I want to invite your attention to Hebrews chapter 11. Maybe if you've been with me all year, your Bibles will kind of naturally fall open to Hebrews 11. We've been there most of the year, and Hebrews 11 is arguably one of the greatest chapters of all of the Bible. The writer of the book of Hebrews has made a case for the first 10 chapters of stating that no blood of a bull or a goat, no Old Testament system keeping the law cannot save you. And so it invites us to ask the question, then how were Old Testament saints saved? He answers the question and he says, by faith, just like New Testament saints are saved. And then he goes through the Old Testament. He starts with Abel, he does Enoch, he does Noah, and he says they're saved by faith, saved by faith, saved by faith. He gets to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He talks about Sarah, by faith. He comes to Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. Moses is the one who went up on Mount Sinai. He's the one who got the law. If Moses wasn't saved by keeping the law, no one's saved by keeping the law. And we discover Moses is saved by faith. And then he comes to a a, a middle part of Hebrews chapter 11 where he talks about three huge events. Now, in order for you to kind of see these events in the way that I think the writer of Hebrews is shaping them, 
Uh, as I was reading this week, I came across a writing by John MacArthur. Many of you know him, theologian, pastor, uh, radio preacher. John MacArthur lists four kinds of faith. Now, they're not four kinds of faith like biblical faith and a Buddhist has faith and a Muslim has faith. It's four kinds of Christian faith, four kinds of ways in which we relate to God by faith. Here's the first one he mentions, and that's receiving faith. Receiving faith is an empty-handed faith that comes to the cross of Christ and trusts that God will receive me and not reject me. You know, when we come to the cross of Christ, we don't, we don't come with our gifts and our abilities and our talents and our, and our intelligence and our money and our accolades and our reputation in our hands. We come empty-handed. Uh, one old theologian said that the ground is level at the cross, meaning whether you come from royalty or poverty, we're all saved the same way. And we come believing that if we come to Christ and we ask for the forgiveness of sins and we repent of our sins, he will do a life-changing work in us. And that's what he says. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so that's a receiving faith. The second faith that John MacArthur mentions is a reckoning faith. A reckoning faith is something a little bit more than a receiving faith. It's not coming just as I am, but a reckoning faith is a faith that trusts that God will account righteousness to a soul that's spiritually bankrupt. Uh, Sometimes we think of ourselves uh, outside of the soul. We think of ourselves and we classify ourselves by, by ethnicity or race or gender, but none of those are what make you the image of God. You're not made in the image of God because of your hair color, your eye color, your skin color, or your gender. You're made in the image of God because God has given you a soul. He's made you immortal. He's made you with the capability of eternity, just like he's eternal. And so when we think about being eternal and we think about our heart, we have to admit, we have to agree with God that we are spiritually bankrupt. You might, you might be here this morning and have a lot of money in the bank, but I'm not talking about your money. I'm talking about your heart. You know what the Bible says about your heart? That our hearts as people, as, as mankind, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, so much so, who can imagine it? Can you, can you imagine the evil that would go up in a tower and shoot down into a crowd in and, and Las Vegas and just shoot and shoot and shoot and kill as many as you can? And yet that's, that's who we really are. Sometimes we try to think of ourselves as good. In fact, most people that I talk to in Montana that don't know Christ, if I talk to them about heaven, they say, well, I, I hope I'm going to make it. I hope God will, God will see that I'm basically a good person. But we're not really basically good, are we? The reality is, if you take all the thoughts that you've ever had, and things you've thought about doing to people, and the times that you were so mad and you worked yourself into a rage, and maybe you didn't do it, but the heart reflected that you were spiritually bankrupt. Jesus didn't come to this earth and die because we're basically good. He came to this earth and he died because we're basically evil. And so that's a reckoning faith. He gives us his righteousness. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. John MacArthur speaks of a third kind of faith. It's called a resting faith. I love the description of this faith. It's a faith that rests in the comfort of God during times of suffering and adversity. In our uh, Emmanuel family, in this spiritual family that we have, we've lost a lot of people this year. We've done a lot of funerals. We have people in our congregation who are grieving 
they've experienced tremendous loss. And it's not just the loss of, of people through death, but sometimes it's the loss of a job or a, or a relationship that's strange. It's the loss of a, of a marriage, or maybe you get bad news from the doctor, and it's the loss of your health. There are all kinds of adversities that we face in life, and we have a God, and the Scripture says about Him that He gives a peace that passes all understanding, that the Holy Spirit's name, God actually calls Him, one of His names is the Comforter. And there is a place where we can rest in God, even if it's the valley of the shadow of death. But this morning, I want to talk about the fourth kind of faith that MacArthur lists. And it's called a risking faith. This is what I want to call your attention to here in Hebrews 11 in just a few moments. A risking faith is a faith that trusts in the power of God. So it's not, it's not resting in God. It's not receiving salvation of God. This is a different kind of work. This is trusting in the power of God. This is a faith that attempts the impossible and will utterly fail if God doesn't answer. So here's the difference between the risking and going all the way back to the receiving faith. When, when, you, when you think about the receiving faith, Jesus receives us just as we are. Um, did any of you ever see Billy Graham when he was on TV and all the years that he preached or his big crusades? He only ever had one altar call invitation song. Cliff Barrels would always lead in Just As I Am. It's a great, perfect song for an invitation because God receives you just as you are. But even though he receives you just as you are, isn't it interesting that God refuses to leave you just as you are? He wants to do a faith work, this is what grows us, that brings us to the place in our faith journey where we've grown and we will Risk it all for the cause of Christ, for the name of Christ. And that's where we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 11. If you've got your Bible open, I want to call your attention to verse 29, only three verses, 29, 30, and 31. The, the, the writer's going to use the same terminology he's been using. This should now no longer take you by surprise. He starts by saying, by faith. What does he say? Verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. Another narrative, another part of the history of the Hebrews, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, we have the whole story in the Old Testament. He just gives it a line. Verse 31. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those that were disobedience because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, sometimes the Bible makes me laugh. It's a, it's a bit Shakespearean. She gave a friendly welcome to the spies. This didn't mean that she had coffee and pumpkin spice bread. She saved their lives. She saved their lives from the king of Jericho, and it just writes, she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. So uh, it's okay to laugh. If you, if, and if you don't laugh, something's wrong with you. That's funny. That's really funny. Okay, so we're going to take these three historical narratives. The writer of Hebrews does like he always does. He's proving his case to Hebrews, so he uses Hebrew history. And he's going to take these three cases to talk about a risking faith. He's going to talk about moments in time when you have to risk everything. And these three stories are really symbolic. Uh, Let's talk about the first one. The, the story of uh, the Israelites coming out of Egypt is really symbolic. Egypt represents the world. 
The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, so that represents being slaves to the bondage of sin. Jesus says in John chapter 8, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Nod your heads or I have to preach that longer. Nod your heads. Okay. All right. So that's what Egypt represents. Moses represents Jesus. He's the deliverer. He's the Savior who comes to take them out of the world, out of the sin, out of the slavery of sin, and lead them to the promised land. The promised land symbolizes heaven. And so we have all of this here. So when they get to the Red Sea, what does that represent? Well, the Red Sea represents the moment in our lives, even as New Testament believers, when returning to the slavery of sin looks like a better choice than going forward with Jesus. Every believer comes to this place. You, you've been set free from sin. And, uh, and each of us have certain sins which we have bents toward. Um, some of us, we've never in our life had a problem with drinking or alcohol. And other people, that's their battle. Some of us have never smoked dope. And some people, marijuana is their battle. Some of us have, oh, let me say it this way. Some of you have never had a problem with overeating, but some of us have. Some of us have never had a problem with impulse buying and credit card spending. Others of us, that's been a terrible problem. And so I could keep going and going. You understand this. There's all different kinds of sins, and these sins, uh, they enslave us. And then we get to the moment where we're walking with Jesus, and all of a sudden, like Lot's wife, we cast a backward glance. All of a sudden, we actually start thinking, you know what? Going with Jesus is hard. And maybe that thing that we used to do, that remember last week we talked about the fleeting pleasure of sin? Maybe that thing that we used to do used to give us some fleeting pleasure. And so we want to go back to the food, and we want to go back to the credit card, and we want that moment where we buy something and we feel good about ourselves, or, or we want to go back to the booze, or we want to go back to the drugs, or we want to go back to the fill-in-the-blank. And we find ourselves right there looking at the Red Sea, and it doesn't look like there's a way forward. And it doesn't look like Christ can really help me. And I've kind of fallen now in a routine. I go to church on Sunday, but I don't know if I'm seeing any miracles in my life. And we start to cast a backward glance, and we think about going back. We even know in our head, that's not a good choice. We know in our head, that was destroying us when God set us free. We sang about this, this this morning. I'm no longer a child of fear. I'm a child of God. All of that's changed, but we think about going back. And in that moment, you have to make a step to go forward. Now, you can't see victory. It takes a step of faith to see victory. You see, the, the Red Sea is still there. You've got to step out, and it divides. And the reason many of us don't have the story of victory in Jesus, we, we can't claim to be more than conquerors through him who loved us, is we spend our whole lives somewhere between the Red Sea and Egypt. We go forward with Jesus until we get to the hard thing where we've got to make a step of faith, and then we go back towards Egypt. And then we go back towards Egypt, we realize, well, that's not going to do anything for me. I've been set free from that. I need to go forward. But we only get to the Red Sea. And we stay in a Christian wilderness desert experience. Churches stay there. Denominations stay there. And they don't quite go forward. They never take a step of faith. And so they don't have that story where God has given complete victory because it only comes when you risk it all. It only comes when you realize, I'm not going back to sin. I don't belong there anymore. 
That fear is not mine. That slavery, that bondage is not mine. I'm a child of God. I walk by faith, not by sight. And we do what God calls us to, and then God delivers us, and we walk through on dry ground. That's the picture there of a risking faith. There's a second picture I want you to see this morning, and it's the third point, not the second point, on your bulletin outline. And those of you that are OCD, I apologize if I messed up your whole day. But I want to I preach that third point first. It's, it's the story of Rahab. Now, Rahab, the Scripture says, is a prostitute in Jericho. Jericho is uh, depraved. The debauchery of ancient Jericho is so terrible, God's given them time to repent, and now he's decided he's going to judge them. And Rahab is an inhabitant of, she's a citizen of Jericho. Now, I want you to understand the story. Rahab is not Mother Teresa. Rahab is, is not a part of the, of the community council that's trying to do good things in Jericho. Rahab's a prostitute. She's a part of the debauchery. She's a part, of, in particular, of the, of the sexual perversion uh, of Jericho. But Rahab comes to a moment where she realizes she's going the wrong way. In fact, she realizes her whole city's going the wrong way, and she needs life. And she's heard about these Hebrews. And then two guys who are spying out Jericho show up, and she has a chance to help them. She saves their lives, and she says to them, Will you remember me? Just like the thief on the cross said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a, it's a step of faith. It's a, it's a confession of faith. She says, I know you're the way to life. I know this is the way of death. Will you remember me? And what she's doing is separating herself from the people that she's always lived with. And so here's what I want you to see this morning. The choice of Rahab represents that time when you become aware of the fact that you must choose a new set of friends and mentors to move you forward towards God and eternal life and abundant life. Here's why so many of you struggle. We just talked about turning around and going back to the booze or back to the porn or back to the fill in the blank. The reason so many of you struggle with that is the friends that you keep, that's where they live. They don't love Jesus. The only time they use the name of Jesus is to curse by. They're not in church this morning. They're not going to be in a life group this week. They're not thinking about reading their Bible every day. They live in darkness. And they were your friends, and you just kept them. And so they're the ones that you go to for advice. They're the ones that you kind of lean towards their philosophy of life, even their theology of life. And so you're trying to have one foot in the light, one foot in eternity, one foot in the church, one foot in the kingdom of God, and one foot in the world where you're still kind of keeping all your old friends. And that always creates disaster for a new believer. Even an older believer, if that's still where you are, it's not going to work. Now, now let me say carefully and precisely, your friends need Jesus. So I'm not saying walk away from them completely, but I'm saying that's not the people that you go to for advice. That's not the people you go to for counsel. That's not your fellowship group. God puts you in a different family. The most important family that you have is your spiritual family. This, is, this, this gathering is, is a spiritual gathering of people. We're the Emmanuel family. The Bible word for us is uh, ecclesia. It's translated in your Bible as church. So, so many times people say, I don't need church. Well, if they're talking about the building, I don't need a building, but I do need the ecclesia. 
I do need the people like me who were called out. That's what the word means, called out ones. Called out of darkness into light. Called from death into life. I need you. The greatest mistake that I made as a young Christian was I thought I could do it by myself. But you see, God didn't give me all the gifts. When I got saved, he gave me a spiritual gift or two. He's given you a spiritual gift or two. But only do we have access to all the gifts when we are all together. You need people who love Jesus, who love you, who will speak truth into your life, who know God's word to be a part of your life. That's the people you rely on. That's the people you listen to. And you've got to do like Rahab and separate yourselves from people that no longer live for the Lord. Now, do they need Jesus? Should you share with them Jesus? Absolutely. But you can't live that way any longer. The Apostle Paul reinforces this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn over there with me, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I really praise the Lord that the Corinthian church had so many problems because because of that, in our Bible, we have so many answers. Uh, One of the problems the church at Corinth had is they were trying to live with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world of Satan. And so when the Apostle Paul speaks to them about this, he uses a, a literary technique where you ask rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? A rhetorical question is a question that you ask that the answer is already presumed. Like when my mom used to say to me, if everybody else jumps off the cliff, are you going to do that too? That's a rhetorical question. So here's what the Apostle Paul says. Here's the command, first of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. The command is, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In modern uh, society, modern Christendom, we almost only apply that to marriage. But it's much, much broader than that. It has to do with all of our relationships. So the command is, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now he's going to make his point by asking five rhetorical questions. Question number one, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Cops and gangsters should be on opposite sides. Whenever the cops become a part of the gangsters, then the law enforcement becomes corrupt. It ceases to work. There should be no partnership there. Question number two, what fellowship has light with darkness? Light and darkness don't go together. Have you ever heard of a flash dark? No, it's a flash light. Because light always penetrates darkness. Darkness always runs from light. If you live your life as you're supposed to, as light in darkness, your friends will either come to Jesus Christ or they will run from you. And then you won't have to worry about your friends anymore. Question number three, verse 15. What accord, what unity has Christ and Belial? Belial is the name of a demon god that was worshipped in ancient times. So imagine this morning, this is what Paul's saying. Let's say that this section worships Christ and this section worships a demon. Sorry, this section, just an illustration. So when we get together at the praise time, can we sing praises together? When we open God's word, can we do that together? No, that doesn't make any sense at all. There's no unity between Christ and Belial. Question number four. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever. The, the word portion means inheritance. What inheritance do they have that's the same? A believer's inheritance is everlasting life. An unbeliever's inheritance is everlasting death. A believer's inheritance is heaven. An unbeliever's inheritance is hell. 
A believer's inheritance is the forgiveness of sin. An unbeliever's inheritance is judgment on their sin. They don't have anything alike when it comes to inheritance. Question number five, the last question. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The number one command we find in Scripture is that you shall have no other gods before me. And whenever we do that, we corrupt, we pervert the faith that we're supposed to be living in. So a risking faith comes to this moment when I no longer go back to the world. My, my old friends, I, I love them. They need Jesus. I'll share Christ with them. But I don't go to them for fellowship. I don't go to them for accountability. I don't go to them for truth. I don't go to them for wisdom. I don't go to them that they might pray for me. They don't, under, they don't understand those things. They don't know them. Neither can they know them because they only come when you're born again spiritually. That's what Rahab reminds us of. And now I come to my third point, which is your second point, and that has to do with the story of Jericho. The story of Jericho is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Moses is no longer the leader. Joshua's the leader. They've come into the promised land, and now they have to fight these battles to take the promised land. I've told you before, Jericho was full of debauchery. It was, a, it was truly one of the first sin cities, like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and yet at the same time, uh, militarily, they had these incredible defenses. In fact, they had the most sophisticated defense system at the time. They had walls, plural, that protected the city. They had a very large, wide outside wall. It was said to be so wide that a team of six horses, six horses wide, could pull a chariot all the way around the whole walls, uh, the walls of the city. And so on those walls, they would stand and fight you. They would shoot arrows at you and drop rocks on you and pour hot things on you and kill you in every way that they could. But if you managed to get up the outside walls, then what they would do is they had little bridges, like little ladder bridges. They would run, a, run across to the inside wall. There was a gap in between. So they would run across to the inside wall and do what? Pull the bridges back. So you finally have fought your way up on the outside wall, only to get up on the wall and get shot again by the arrows and javelins and killed there. It was ingenious. No one dared attack Jericho. Joshua knew it, and he met with God, and he goes, what am I going to do? You called me to fight and win, but what am I going to do? And God gave him a plan. He said, I want you to walk around Jericho in silence for seven days. On the eighth day, walk around, have the band play, and the walls will fall down. Got another plan? Imagine taking that back to the Joint Chief of Staffs. West Point grads. Military stuff. You you don't have to be a military strategist or a physics major to know this isn't really going to work. And so the walls of Jericho, this story as we read it in the chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, represents those times when the challenges are overwhelming in our lives and obeying God's word doesn't seem like it's going to work. In fact, let me add a little more something to that. Not only does obeying God's word not seem like it'll work, but it even seems like it'll make things worse. You see, being at the Red Sea is about, the temptation is to go back. But being at the wall of Jericho, the temptation is, I don't know how to go forward. 
And there are many things in our lives where God calls us to do things that we think, that doesn't seem like it works. Let me give you a very obvious, the most obvious of all biblical illustrations. And I know it's going to make a lot of you a little a little antsy and a little uncomfortable, but it's the perfect illustration, and it's tithing. You see, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out that if you give the first 10% of all you make, that only leaves you 90%, and 90% cannot go further than 100%. Every mathematician knows that, and yet God's Word says, if you will give to me your tithe, that first portion, that first 10% of all that you make, I will make that go further than if you had the whole thing. In fact, he even says in Malachi, test me and try me in this and see if I won't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing on you. He begs us to try it. Modern statistics here in America are that about about 95% of all Christians don't tithe. It's really incredible to me. This is what it means. It means that most of you trust Jesus with your eternal life, that you're not going to hell, but you can't trust him with a few measly dollars. It's paradoxical. It's oxymoronic. It's just moronic. It, it doesn't make sense. And yet we can't believe that obeying God is really going to work. Um, I've been tithing for over 50 years now. I know I don't look that old, but I am. Do you know what my testimony is? God has blessed me and blessed me and blessed me and blessed me. I live at a standard of living far above that which I should live at. I drive cars better than I should drive. I live in a house better than I should live in. He's cared for me in remarkable ways. And he hasn't just met my needs. That's his promise. He's lavished his love on me. He's given me more than I should ever have. And there are so many others in this room who could stand up and say, that's true of me as well. But let's just don't talk about tithing. Let's talk about other things. Let's talk about that person that you work with that you'd really like to give a knuckle sandwich to. I mean, what they really need is for you to take them out behind the office building and whoop them. That's what they need. And when you turn to God's Word, what does it say? It says, give a gentle answer to turn away wrath. It says, choose meekness. It says that we should turn the other cheek. That if someone asks of us, even a person we don't like, of our coat, we should give him two coats, we should go the extra mile. And our brain tells us, that's not going to work. There's so many parts of the Word of God that when we get to them, we said, that's not the way it works. The world tells you, you better watch out for yourself. Nobody else is going to. You know what I've discovered? I don't even watch out for myself very good. I need God watching out for me. And if God's going to be the one who watches out for me, then I have to walk in obedience to Him. I have to step out on faith and do the kind of things that don't seem like they're going to work. We live in a day and an age when I think people think that hate is stronger than love. I think they think depression is stronger than joy. I think we live in a day and age when they think materialism is stronger than spirituality. And we haven't proven them wrong because we haven't stepped out on faith. What's God asking you to do by faith? I bet most of you already know it. Maybe you're here, uh, guys, husbands, and you're not really the spiritual leader of your family. Has your wife ever heard you pray out loud? Do you pray with her on a regular basis? I had a really good friend. His name was Scrubby Rast. He got saved in a wonderful, powerful way. I don't have time to tell that part of the testimony. But he came to me one day and he said, I can't pray out loud. 
I don't pray with my wife. I don't pray with my girls. We went on a mission trip. He was doing everything. My, the, the other pastor knew he was my right-hand guy. So we got together on one occasion, and the other pastor asked Scrubby to pray out loud. And I, everybody else bowed their heads except me. I was looking at Scrubby. I knew he didn't pray out loud. And I was looking at him, and I was just about to pray to rescue him from the embarrassment when he prayed this squeaky, raspy, fragile kind of prayer. But guess what? Once he prayed out loud, he became a maniac. He started praying out loud everywhere. we go to Pizza Hut. He would stand up. He'd get the whole room to be quiet. He said, we're going to pray. He'd pray for everybody in the Pizza Hut. I, I, I'd go to play golf with him. He'd get the foursome together. There'd be foursomes behind us. He said, y'all come over here. We're going to pray before we play golf. Who prays before they play golf? He prayed everywhere. It, it set him free. What was it? It took a moment of faith. Maybe that describes your prayer life. Maybe the place of faith is for you to share your faith with the friends that we just talked about. Maybe God's calling you to lead a life group and you go, I can't hardly talk. I don't know the Bible, but you know God's calling you. And it's going to be a moment of faith where you say yes to him. This is risking faith. Not going back to the world, making sure that you're a part of the family, the fellowship of God, and making sure that you're moving forward even when you don't understand how it's going to work. You know the story. You know the story of Jericho. They marched around seven days, didn't say a word. They marched around on the eighth day. The band played, and the walls came down. What walls do you need to fall down in your life? I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. By way of benediction, let me say this. We've been talking about a risking love this morning, a love that risks. And yet the Apostle Paul, when he writes the Philippians, says it's really no risk at all. Here's what he says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. This is his risk, the loss of all things. He says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, Hebrews 11, faith, in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. When you give your life to Christ, when you make that step of faith, it's really no risk at all because he will rush in to do more for you than you ever dreamed of. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.